Hey everyone, I'm JR, and this is one of Mike's mini history lessons. This is not a political podcast by any means, but in light of the Black Lives Matter movement that's sparking protests throughout the country, we wanted to take a look at the history of the United States prison system and how it correlates with the current racial unrest in our country. The United States imprisons more people than any other country in the world, more than 2 million people. That includes China, whose population is over four times that of the United States. And what's more, one-third of American prisoners are black. There are plenty of debates in the political world on what to do about that, but we aren't here to discuss politics or policies. We are here to tell you how it happened and how the United States developed a culture to use imprisonment to deal with criminality. Because the criminal justice system was shaped by a culture that viewed black men and women as more prone to criminality and therefore subject to control and imprisonment by the state. Some believe the criminal justice system has always been part of the machinery of politics and economics and culture in America. The first thing we're going to cover is the creation of the modern penitentiary, specifically Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia which opened in 1829 and stayed in use until 1971. What made Eastern State Penitentiary so unique is that it was the first prison ever built with indoor plumbing in every cell with a sink and a flushable toilet. That means Eastern State Penitentiary had indoor plumbing before the White House. The architects that designed the building believed that every person, regardless of what landed them in prison, had good in their hearts, and so they designed the building to inspire penitence or true regret. Eastern State Penitentiary was part of the movement that laid the foundation for America's penitentiary system, and that approach to systematic imprisonment created the conditions for the mass incarceration problem that would happen more than 100 years later. Ironically, the founders of the prison had seemingly good intentions. They believed the purpose of punishment was penance. Up to that point, most prisons were merely holding cells with men, women, and children being held for everything from petty theft to murder, and it made for filthy conditions. Eastern State was designed to give each inmate their own cell so they would have time to reflect and repent. It was designed to heal. But unfortunately, that is not what ended up happening. Prisoners spent 23 hours a day in their cell unable to talk to anyone. They ate, slept, and worked in their cell. Almost every prisoner just felt isolated and alone leading to many of the prisoners getting to the brink of insanity. Despite this, prisons like Eastern State started popping up in other cities across the United States as well as in Europe. These prisons spread the idea that people who break laws are criminals who need rehabilitation because they have an affliction. And prison was the cure. These prisons institutionalized criminalization. And in the decades following, prisons became a place where Americans sent people deemed to be undesirable and became a vessel for dealing with deep social and cultural issues. People were in prison for being gay, being immigrants, or for being black. Now we're going to jump forward to the Civil War. The Civil War took place from 1861 to 1865, and we'll have plenty of episodes on the Civil War, I'm sure, but the part that concerns us here is actually the end. Right before the Union won the war, Congress passed the 13th Amendment, abolishing the institution of slavery. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude 
except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That was the intention, anyway. But right there, in the language of the amendment, was a loophole. It said that no person can be enslaved in the U.S. except as a punishment for a crime. That bit of language became an opportunity for white Southerners in particular to create new economic labor systems that relied on the arrest of large numbers of black men and returning them to situations that strongly resembled slavery prior to the war. During the period of Reconstruction, after the Civil War, southern states took advantage of that loophole and passed laws that later became known as the Black Codes. They were state-level laws that targeted the formerly enslaved population. These laws did things like criminalizing unemployment and made it impossible for a black man or woman in the South not to be vulnerable to arrest for some trumped-up allegation. And keep in mind that all of this is happening around the same time the KKK is forming in 1866. The effects of these black codes were devastating. Many black men were placed back into servitude through incarceration. Only this time, they were slaves of the state. In response to this abuse of the 13th Amendment, the federal government passed two new amendments. First, the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protection under the law for all citizens, and the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed voting rights. The government also sent army troops to occupy southern states and protect black citizens. And under this protection, black people flourished. They opened successful businesses and won Senate and House seats in former Confederate states. But by the end of Reconstruction in the late 1870s, the Jim Crow laws began to be passed, essentially serving the same function as the black codes, and in some ways were even more effective. It was a crime for a person to walk beside a railroad line, to sell the produce of your farm after dark, to speak loudly in the company of a white woman, and to leave the employ of one person for another person without their permission. And so, as a result of all these arrests, the black prison populations in the southern states rose dramatically. In Alabama, for instance, in the 1850s, 99% of prisoners were white. By the end of the 1870s, 85% of the prisoners were black. The prisons were overcrowded, of course, and the solution that was brought forth to relieve this issue, rather than spend the money to build large prisons, was simply turn prisoners over to companies and people who need large numbers of laborers. Let them pay the state or county government for the use of these convicts, and also assume the costs of imprisoning them, feeding them, and taking care of them. These prisoners were forced to live in labor camps and work on large construction projects, railroads, plantations, and mines, in horrific conditions. Prisoners were forced to work naked, work after losing limbs, and often died. The South owed large amounts of money to foreign investors who helped them fund the war. They owed the North for secession in the first place and had to rebuild their infrastructure. So these convict leasing investments produced huge returns and further solidified the idea that convicts can be used in whatever way the state saw fit, including 1871 when Virginia passed legislation that it was appropriate and lawful that convicted people could be slaves of the state. In a nutshell, emancipation was the moment for enshrining both mass citizenship rights, or the actual recognition of black people as citizens of the United States, and the capacity for mass criminalization, which then took off and essentially changed the trajectory of our history. 
So if Eastern State Penitentiary began the culture of criminality, then the Black Codes and the Jim Crow laws began the culture of assigning criminality to a specific group of people. And so, by the end of the 1890s, many white people viewed the fact that black people were disproportionately imprisoned at higher rates as indisputable evidence of black criminality, as if nothing going on in the South mattered to the evidence of this prison problem. Prior to emancipation, depictions of black men and women were often that they were naive or unintelligent, but after emancipation, there were more and more black men genuinely independent and sometimes in competition with white men for jobs and opportunities. Once this begins to happen, the more popular depiction begins to be that black men are dangerous and America is only safe if they are somehow brought back under control of white society. These events in the South at the end of the 1800s infected society so much so that at the start of the 20th century, black criminality became a part of the newly formed field of social science, which also became the leading science of Western society. This quote-unquote science stated that black people are, in fact, inferior to whites and that black men are more prone to violence. And this is the most important way that Northerners convinced themselves that to describe black people as criminals was not racist was to say, there's no racism in the North. So if the North was free of racism, the only way you can explain disproportionate crime rates was to say that black people have a crime problem. This view was perpetuated by a German immigrant by the name of Frederick Ludwig Hoffman, a statistician who moved to the United States in 1884. He directed his professional efforts to the statistical analysis of black inferiority. Stating in one of his books titled Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro, quote, with an inordinate rate of mortality, with an excessive degree of immorality, with a greater tendency to crime and pauperism than the whites, the Negro race has also, as shown by the facts just given, a far lower degree of economic activity and inclination towards the accumulation of capital and other material wealth. End quote. He also stated, quote, Only by means of a thorough analysis of all the data that make up the history of the colored race in this country can the true nature of the so-called Negro problem be understood. Being of foreign birth, a German, I was fortunately free from a personal bias which might have made an impartial treatment of the subject difficult. This book sparked a search for the truth of black inferiority everywhere in the country, and allowed for the justification of not only the oppression that occurred in the South, but also the oppressions that began to occur in the North as black men and their families began to move to other parts of the country. Throughout the rest of the 20th century, a cycle of demonization, enforcement, and imprisonment reinforced the notion of black criminality and shaped policy, setting the stage for mass incarceration later in the 20th century. But what is actually driving mass incarcerations today? Is it the drug war, mandatory minimums, the three strikes rule, or is it something else? Well, if you've ever watched the opening scene of the TV show, Law & Order, you might remember this. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. But there are a few very important details missing from that. The judges and the public defenders, for instance. The people are not represented by the police and the prosecutors. 
but this is a good example of just how much power is placed on the prosecutor here in America. The district attorneys can essentially decide if and how to prosecute cases. They recommend prison sentences and have the power to offer plea bargains. Prosecutors have full access to police and investigators, while defense attorneys often have little or no access to investigators at all. Even with all of this power, very few people associate the prosecutor with mass incarcerations. Oftentimes, the first thing someone thinks of when they think of prisons being overpopulated is the war on drugs. But in reality, only about 15% of incarcerated individuals are in jail because of drugs. But this is because of the difference between state and federal prisons. Usually, when you hear about a drug conviction, it's being discussed on a federal charge level. But federal prisoners make up a very small fraction of the overall prison population. So then maybe it's the non-drug-related crimes, like robbery or murder, things like that. But the homicide rate now is lower than it was in 1970. In fact, the homicide rate has had a long, slow, steady decline since 1991. So over the course of the 90s and 2000s, the rate of arrests for serious violent and serious property crime has dropped by around 25%. But the number of people being sent up to prisons keeps going up. So what gives? Well, in the 90s, a tough-on-crime culture throughout the country resulted in the hiring of over 10,000 more assistant prosecutors in America. Now, you can't have all these new prosecutors sitting around all day doing nothing, and there's always someone you can charge with something. So all these new prosecutors receive cases. More cases means more trials. More trials means more prison sentences. All of this points to a much larger picture than just the war on drugs or meeting minimums and private prisons being the driving force behind mass incarcerations. But where did all this power and the role of the prosecutor in our justice system come from? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to when America was founded. When our country was founded, prosecutors were not elected. It was more of a part-time job. And it stayed that way for the most part up until the 19th century. In other words, you would have to hire your own lawyer to prosecute someone who committed a crime against you. But around the 1830s, after states started hiring prosecutors, there was a movement in the states to make them more accountable to local voters. And by the beginning of the 20th century, most states elected prosecutors and their power grew as the criminal justice system played a more important role in those states. Because states were regulating people. Prohibition and regulating alcohol and the Jim Crow laws regulating race in America are just some examples. These are what led to the prosecutor becoming a more powerful official and began the trend of the prosecutor becoming an upwardly mobile politician. And in the 1940s, we see this trend hit its stride as the Republican ticket has two former prosecutors as their president and VP nominees, Earl Warren being an anti-Latino and anti-Asian prosecutor from California who was one of the most important architects of the Japanese internment camps during World War II. But this is not just a Republican trait. Being a prosecutor was a legitimate start to a career in politics, and on the Democratic side, one of the most famous Democratic families, the Kennedys, had two prosecutors themselves. Robert and Ted, reflecting how the Democratic Party converges with the Republican Party as being tough on crime. And that is part of the turning point 
in history to people seeing career prosecutors making a name for themselves as being tough on crime, often using ethnicity and race to crack down on marginalized groups, becoming famous, and being able to run for president, vice president, or even becoming chief justice of the Supreme Court. But why is it so politically beneficial for prosecutors to be tough on crime? Well, don't forget, prosecutors are elected officials and thus need to answer to voter demands. And throughout the country, voters want a tough-on-crime posture from district attorneys. So what causes the voters to want a tough-on-crime posture? Because contrary to popular opinion, crime in America isn't really that widespread. In fact, there are studies that show crime is profoundly concentrated. And year after year in various cities, somewhere around 50% of all crime is concentrated to roughly 10% of all city blocks, and all crime takes place in less than half. In other words, a great majority of Americans never experience crime. Rather, they only get it secondhand or thirdhand through the news. As an example, let's take Chicago. Chicago is part of Cook County, and roughly 50% of Cook County lives outside of Chicago, but the county elects the DA, which means that suburban whites have a very large say in who the prosecutor is, but they don't experience what the prosecutor does because that prosecutor's job is to enforce law in the urban area where the suburbanites don't really go. So their perception of crime, which is usually driven by the media and or stereotypes, often influence them to vote for a candidate that is tough on crime. And this fear of crime drives both policy changes, also known as the war on drugs, and also is the politics that drive prosecutors to be harsher and to prosecute more people and put more people behind bars. It's the general fear of hindsight most prosecutors feel. If they don't prosecute this person, and then that person goes out and commits a rape, everyone's going to blame the prosecutor for not having been tough on crime in the first place. So it often ends up being prison or nothing for many prosecutors. Now, there is a nationwide movement of progressive prosecutors looking to stop mass incarceration. The belief that it doesn't make sense to charge that many people with that many crimes because ultimately, it costs a lot of money, and that can be utilized in other ways and better ways in the community to resolve the problems trying to be solved with the criminal justice system. This movement has met some success and ultimately has decreased prison numbers since 2010. But let's not kid ourselves either. Our prison numbers are still the worst in the world. We have not reduced the population by more than a single-digit percentage point. So to sum it all up, from the building of the first penitentiaries in the 1800s, prisons became vessels for American anxiety about crime and people who commit crime. As the fear of black people spread at the end of the Civil War, imprisonment became a weapon for controlling their entire community. And as the prosecutor gained power in America, their job became to enforce norms and attitudes. All of this points to what is arguably the real source of the problem. Ultimately, Policy won't be the way out of mass incarceration as long as the underlying culture in America criminalizes people of color, specifically black people. Long-term cultural change is needed. Or at least that's the lesson you would get if Mike was your history teacher. 